John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hi, this is Steve. In art, there is a concept known as negative space. It refers to the empty space around the subject, and it's often as important to the work as the subject itself. Godfather 2 is unquestionably a masterpiece of cinema with incredible performances, beautiful cinematography, and a story that is as profound, disturbing, and moving today as it was almost 40 years ago. It is also, however, a film whose power comes almost as much from its ambiguity as it does from the clarity of its storytelling. In other words, often it's what we don't know, the film's negative space, which makes it continue to fascinate no matter how many times we watch it. In the second installment of our exploration of The Godfather Part Two, John and I wrestle with this ambiguity. For instance, what exactly is the quiet, contemplative Vito Corleone thinking as he begins his relationship with the criminal Clemenza? And perhaps even more compelling, exactly what does Michael know, and when does he know it? Is he sure from the beginning that it was Hyman Roth behind the attack on his compound, or does he also suspect Frank Pantangeli and who killed the assassins at the Corleone estate? Who is that dangerous-looking man in black that appears at Michael's side without any explanation? And perhaps, most importantly, exactly when does Michael begin to suspect his brother Fredo? And what did Fredo really do? Did he simply give Johnny Ola a bit of inside information, or was he actually involved in the assassination attempt? The only way to answer these questions is through a careful examination of the movie itself. And the best way to do that is to visit cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream The Godfather Part Two, along with every other film we've ever reviewed on Amazon Prime. 
And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to John and I discuss Martin Scorsese's recent article in Harper's, where he not only discusses the great director Federico Fedellini, but the state of cinema in the midst of streaming services, computer-controlled algorithms, and what he sees as the degradation of film as an art form. So, that's a discussion of Martin Scorsese's pronouncements about the state of cinema on Patreon and The Godfather Part 2, Act 2, this Friday on The Cinephiles. When I heard it, I wasn't angry. I knew Mo. I knew he was headstrong, talking loud, saying stupid things. So when he turned up dead, I let it go. And I said to myself, this is the business we've chosen. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where we continue our exploration of Francis Ford Coppola and his Godfather films. This is our second part of Godfather Part 2. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over there on the Outlaw Nation uh, and uh, a voiceover guy and a massive Godfather enthusiast. Uh, uh, for all the fans who've said you've waited a long time for us to do it, I've waited just as long for us to do it. So, let you know, I'm in your camp and also doing the show with Steve. So it's nice to be on both sides of the fence on this one. And I've been enjoying it so much. And I'm excited for us to walk into now the Robert De Niro portion of uh, of The Godfather Part 2. Isn't that uncomfortable being on both sides of the fence? I mean, it's like a <laughs> chain link or like, I hope it's not barbed wire because that would be very painful. I'm wearing my cup. I'm wearing my cup. <laughs> As you always have to on every episode of The Cinephiles, adequate yes. protection is always required. It's essential. <laughs> I wish all of you were watching on video. I could have seen the perfect commercial gesture that Roka made on It's Essential. <laughs> but if we digress right at the beginning, this is going to be 28 parts to get through Godfather. <laughs> Too. And as you said, where we left off, we are just transitioning for the very first time to see Robert De Niro playing Vito Corleone in New York City in 1917. I want to say right at the beginning, I think his performance is astounding. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And you think about the fact that he was, you know, as we mentioned in the first part, uh, Steve, he had auditioned to play uh, one of the uh, play Sonny, I think, or Michael play Sonny, I think in God in the Godfather. So Coppola kept tabs on him. And then this kind of roller. So this lets you know, people, sometimes you don't get something because you're destined to get something else. And that something else could lead to a bigger thing for you than if you had gotten the other thing you were going for. So just a little life lesson there uh, as you look at these movies as well. Well, and, and, and to be clear, De Niro wasn't De Niro at this right. point. Right. You know, he had done a couple of films. He did Mean Streets in 73, which he had this a, a really charismatic supporting role um, in a small film. And then this is 74, you yeah. know? I mean, like, th this is a huge risk. And what's astounding to me, in hindsight, is you have one of the greatest actors, arguably the greatest actor of his generation, being played by one of the greatest actors or who will become yeah. one of the greatest actors of yeah. the next generation. Yeah, great point, Steve. Absolutely. And I just, it was funny, we, I was watching it with Karen, and there's so many times where Karen turned to me as like, oh my God, that was so Brando. That was so Vito Corleone. <laughs> like, what he does in this performance 
is because this is the origin story is you see him becoming the person he's going to become. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there are elements of the Brando performance, but also him thinking through it and processing it and growing. I mean, it, it's an amazing and a performance that's large, very quiet, you know? Yes. Um, and almost entirely in Italian. It's an amazing performance. Agreed. Uh, and just what he brings to it. And you know, he studied Brando like crazy must've been incredible honor to to be able to you know kind of follow oh, yeah. the footsteps of Brando, but also like you get these opportunities to step up to the plate, the great ones knock it out of the park, and certainly De Niro did that. Yeah, it, it's amazing, and and we start off just with, and I think this is so key, is we were with Michael and his son, and now we're with Vito looking at Santino, little baby James Con there, and the love that you see from Vito Corleone towards his wife and his children is a constant throughout this whole film. Yeah, absolutely. And when you juxtapose that with how many times Michael is leaving his kids or not yes. around his kids or not loving his kids because he's so caught up in trying to make the the family, quote unquote, legitimate, it really is um, a stark difference between the two men. You know something? A man that doesn't spend time with his family can never be considered a man. That's right. Or can never be a real man. A real man. Yeah. A real man. Um, and then we cut to this this show, and this was very common in immigrant communities. They had their own newspapers, their own theaters, their own music, their own, all their own stuff. And this is an Italian uh, musical show, and um, he is with uh, Genco, which is Frank Severo, um, who obviously has a long career, and is even in Godfather Part One. Yes. In the deleted scene as Jenko, yes. No, 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 no. He is one of the guys that's next to Carlo when Santino beats him up. He's just a guy sitting on the wow, stoop. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah. So he's not playing Jenko. No. He's just sitting on the stoop. Yeah. How funny, because there are deleted scenes, I think. That's an older actor. Oh, you're right. That's a great point. Never mind. Yeah. I'll shut up now. That's great. Okay. Please, never. If you shut up, then it's just me talking. And nobody, <laughs> nobody wants that. Um uh, and the, the 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 operetta that they're doing is actually written by Coppola's grandfather, Francesco, that he's named for. And there's two interesting things going on. One is that Jenko is in love with the actress that's there and has brought his friend Vito to the show to see her. And then what's happening in the play is that this guy is an immigrant, Italian immigrant in New York City, who hasn't heard from his mother at home. And while Genko is mooning over this girl and says to Vito, and this, of course, is all in subtitled Italian. He says, isn't she beautiful? And Vito says, to you, she's beautiful. For me, there's only my wife and son. (laughs) Do you think that's fake? No, not at all. Me neither. I think Vito was very much one of those guys who was very loyal and committed, which is why he valued loyalty in his in his business life as well, and why he always repaid loyalty uh, because he understood how important that really how important that really was. This is the thing, and I, I I would stay as far away from any kind of politics as possible. But there's been a lot of discussion in politics about loyalty. To me, it's always like, well, loyalty is something you have to give first. Yeah. before you demand it of others. Yep. Vito is loyal first. Right. Right. Michael demands loyalty before he will be loyal. If he'll even be loyal at all. Yeah. Um 
And then there's this moment, and I just think it's so perfect and sad, which is that the guy on stage gets a letter from home about his mama, his mother has died. And here's Vito in the audience who watched his mother get shot in front of him. Right. You know? Like you don't, that's not an accident that this is happening. And while he's mooning and pulls out a gun and it's very dramatic, melodramatic, we might say uh, a man stands up in white in front of Jenko and Vito and Jenko's like, Hey, sit down. And then he turns Mm -hmm. and it's Fanucci. Um, And as soon as Jenko sees who it is, he shuts the hell up. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. The two different reactions, right? Because we'll find out. Uh, Vito doesn't know who he is, which is no. weird. Kind of a weird thing to not know who Fanucci is if you're living in that neighborhood and not yeah. even heard of it. But his reaction, Jenko's reaction, shows you the difference in the two, the two men's characters, right? Jenko is not a warrior. He's not a leader. Very much a braggart, as he's talking about the yeah. girl so much, uh, but a coward when confronted. So yeah. Well, and, and Vito is i won't say that he's entirely fearless but he's pretty fearless yeah uh he's cautious cautious Mm. is not the same thing as scared right you know and we hear we're going to go backstage and of course we go backstage and there's fanucci shaking down the theater owner and and even grabs the daughter and puts a knife to her yeah and at which point the theater owner completely backs down and goes take take all my money Mm. and who's watching from the alley but Vito and jenko yeah, and this is an important moment because Fanucci, which gives you a little uh, insight into his character, Fanucci doesn't take all the money. Yes. In his self-aggrandizement, in his own butt-kissing, he thinks he's being generous. kind, generous, yeah. to only take a little bit uh, so he can maintain this control over him, uh, so to speak, and keep him in fear of him and it's 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 you know he's a joke basically yeah well i mean but you know this is <laughs> we're gonna have a whole bunch of movies and stories about mafia yeah. and what they do and there is a level of de- and it's it's funny it's one of the funny things about the godfather and and the contrast between michael and Vito is that the 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 feeling we have in the way the godfather happens is that mm-hmm. Vito is on some level a good guy yeah Vito isn't a good. I mean, like at some point, he is he is shaking down people for money. Yes. I mean, yes. how else is he getting money? You know, it's not yeah. like he's just doing favors and never getting money in return. He is a wealthy person when we meet him in the first film. So, yeah. he, you know, the distance between Fanucci and Vito, I don't know. Yeah. But we're back in the Vito does Vito's thinking about jumping in and and doing something, and Jenko wisely stops him, and we're back in the alley, and he's just tries to set him straight. He's got the whole Lower East side. Everybody yeah. pays him. And the thing that Vito s- snags on is like, why would an Italian bother other Italians? Mm-hmm. And it's because immigrants are vulnerable to these criminals. And this is something we hear today. Like one of the reasons, one of the problems with our immigration system, particularly when you have undocumented immigrants, is undocumented mm-hmm. immigrants are very unlikely to go to the police. Yes, which means that they are um, vulnerable to criminals who want to take advantage of them. And they're also vulnerable to people painting them in certain lights, in certain ways, for their political advantage. And that's also horrific to see as the son of immigrants, as a son of hardworking immigrants. I want to make that very clear for anybody who's listening. Uh, parents worked hard. I didn't, I didn't know any immigrants growing up 
And I grew up around a number of immigrants where I grew up in the first 10 years of my life who were not hardworking or working multiple jobs. Uh, and this is the frustrating part when you see this whole uh, narrative being doled out. And yes, you're right, Steve. They're also the most abused in this country because their jobs are constantly threatened. Their jobs are constantly, oh, the, the money, uh, if they can pay them. Sometimes, you know, they work in a bunch of hours and the person who quote unquote hired them uh, skips town or doesn't pay them or disappears. And it's that kind of stuff that it's a terrible life, but you do it to try to live in a better country. Uh, and you're seeing it here too. And and also, Steve, real quick, uh, the, the whole intro of Vito is to show you not only the difference between him and Michael in terms of how they raise their kids, but who they are as people, right? Coppola said after The Godfather, he was mad about how many people like revered Michael Corleone because he saw him as a bad guy. So he uses this story to really reinforce how great of a guy Vito is. You know, why would Italians shake down other Italians? For me, it's only my wife. Oh, I watch my kid crying and it hurts me a little bit, but you know, I'm watching him. He has so much love for everything around him. He's doing all the right things. And Michael in exchange is doing all the wrong things and it's just like to make it very clear to you who you should be cheering for and who you should not be cheering for or wanting to be i i couldn't be, agree more and i think one of the keys to it is that michael essentially comes from a place of privilege yes he grows up wealthy and educated Vito, you know we he literally comes to this country with nothing and what's so and, mm. and you know we haven't seen him for the last decade but we know he was working hard Yes. You know what I mean? There's just yeah. no there's no question that he was working and scraping. And and this is one of the things that I love and, and in De Niro's performance that's so incredible mm -hmm. is he's been learning. Mm -hmm. He's been studying how the world works and eventually he's going to make a decision. Yeah. But he isn't there yet. He's just still studying. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I think that the point that you make is so good and it's, it's one we're going to see in the next scene which is Vito's essential honor and goodness, you know, because we cut to uh, Vito with a, because he works for Jenko's father in the grocery store. And we have him with a huge basket of groceries and he's walking through this crowd. And this shot is amazing. Yeah, yeah. The scale of it and this whole world that they created of the Lower East Side at the turn of the century, this mm -hmm. was shot in uh, a ukrainian community and they in the and you have to when you shoot something like this this is in new york mm. you have to go to every single person who lives in that neighborhood and get permission to shoot there yeah. you know and that means if this is a six-story walk-up or something you're going to talk to every single person in the six-story walk-up because they can't like have to go to work in the middle of the shoot and mm. walk out and ruin a shot yeah. it's a huge logistical thing and naturally paramount didn't want him to do it. We have a perfectly good back lot. Shoot it in the back lot. <laughs> and of course, Coppola says no. Right. Um, and, and part of this is that the community there kind of liked the idea of returning some of the architectural elements hmm. of the city of 1972 New York back to turn of the century New York. Because, as you know, things have been sort of bastardized and covered over. And, and so he actually restored a lot of the old architectures. They did this. And of course, Dean Tavalaris, who's the uh, production designer, does this amazing job. And this shot of De Niro walking, the camera tracks with him, but it tracks with him diagonally. So as mm. he walks, the camera's farther and farther away. And you see this huge expanse yeah. of this community that they built. It's amazing. And uh, he goes home and talks to his wife and 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 then we hear something hit the window. 
<laughs> there is someone with a bag of something who says, hide this for me. I'll come get it. And he throws a bundle into the window. We close the window. And Vito looks at his wife. He looks at the bundle. Uh, she, by the way, is also perfect casting. Yes, a thousand percent. He goes into the bathroom and with a very Brando sort of gesture, closes the door and looks at what's in this bundle. Mm -hmm. Before we get to a bun the bundle, there is a lot of husbands closing doors on wives <laughs> in these Godfather films. But I will say this. This is one where he does not want to involve her in this just in case yes. it's something nefarious. So it's from a place of love. Whereas Michael's is always about shutting people out. Vito is, is closing the door to make sure you're safe and you're not involved in this. Um, and even his. Yeah. So he looks at her just to make sure and closes the door. Uh, and, and she doesn't protest. She doesn't, you know, storm up or bang on the door or whatever. She accepts that it's his own business. Here's the thing, though. I think if you ask Michael, Michael, yeah. why are you closing the door on Kay? He mm -hmm. would say, because I don't want to involve her and I want to protect her. I'm sure that's what Michael would say. That is what, and, and he I'm thinks sure that's, that's what, he what it say. is. Yeah, right. Exactly. He well, lied to I, himself. That's what it is. Well, but the, the difference is, I don't think Vito is lying to his wife. I think his wife knows who Vito is. Yeah. He is not, he's not, let me put it a different way. Okay. He is not concealing who he is from his wife. No, I don't think so either. I'm not saying he is. I, I'm he, saying Michael is doing that. For right. Kay. No, that's, yeah, we're yeah. totally agreeing. That's yeah. the distinction I'm making is that yeah. the difference is Vito is not sharing everything with his wife. Right, right. But he is sharing himself with his wife. Yeah. His wife knows who he is. Michael thinks he's protecting his wife when in fact, he is not sharing who he is with his wife. Right, right. You know, it's that's a much, it's the difference between an, a lie of omission and a full lie. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's why this must all end, the Sicilian thing. That's why yeah. this must all end. <laughs> oh, man, when we get to that scene. Woo! Uh, We're about three parts away from that scene, I think. <laughs> <laughs> At least. Um, and, and, and what's in this bundle? But guns. Mm. And De Niro looks down at the guns and thinks. So let me ask you, Steve, because you like to ask these questions, and every once in a while I turn a question around you. Why does he accept the bundle from this, from what we find out is Clemenza? And even after he sees the guns, why does he um, accept this situation? Because remember at the beginning of the scene, and I think this is what, because we kind of, we went over it, we didn't touch on it too much. She's asking him what's wrong. She's asking him what's going on. So you can infer that Vito is in one of those places in his life where he's like, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do to make money for my family, to provide for my family? I want something more. Uh, and maybe he's shaken from the situation with Fenucci and all this. Maybe his brains are going. And so his wife asks him and he's just like, uh, you know, so we never know what the reason is. But there's something. And then, boom, there's a knock at the window like destiny is knocking at the door and he opens the door or the window in this case and his destiny from this point forward leads him to becoming the dawn so i actually have i feel like there's a question within the question that you're mm. asking <laughs> so, oh, again, of course <laughs> um because what i don't know and this is why i find it difficult to, i don't know how many steps ahead Vito thinks mm. Is that he? He obviously he's a brilliant person. He's a very careful person, as we hear in the first movie. Right. He really tries to think through all the angles. Mm -hmm. So what I don't know is: is he going? He could be looking at the guns and going, 
this is a problem. I need to get these out of my house as quickly as possible, right. but I can't get them out right now. Right. He could be going, hmm, this might be a way for me to get something, yeah. you know, that's transactional, essentially, right. that I, I, you know, I, I, we're obviously in somewhat right at the poverty lines that we don't have a lot and maybe, you know, there's something I can get here. Yeah. So that's thinking one step ahead. Thinking two steps ahead, he could be going, I just saw this guy, Fanucci, who uses violence mm -hmm. to get what he wants. Maybe I need to at least protect myself or step in, or maybe he's thinking three steps ahead or four steps ahead and going, do I want to be Fanucci? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, about. I don't, I, I, and I, and, and so my answer as I've delved into it, my answer to your question is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how far. Yeah. I, because what's so interesting, it, it, and Coppola said this about uh, Michael in the first film is that the goal of a director is to make it so through performance and editing that the audience can see thought and feeling. Yes. And there's so much going on with De Niro. Yeah. When, you know? and for the people who are listening to us, you know, you've been on this journey with us for a number of years. So maybe some of you knew, but you know, it's these little moments when we dive into the classics, the greats, these little moments that seem like throwaway moments, but they actually are laying the groundwork and the foundation for what you're going to see later. Just that little exchange between him and his wife shows you that he's in a crossroads. He's a man at a crossroads. And this situation presents itself to him and he navigates this situation to a certain position. And you're right, Steve, we don't know how far ahead he's thinking, but we do know he's constantly thinking. So he's always thinking of the angles every single day. Well, and the thing is, when he, when Vito is going to act, he acts decisively. Yes. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing halfway about what he does once he's decided something. Right. Women and children can be careless, not men. Right. We're at the grocery store. Uh, Jenko's grocery store. And here's Fanucci. And, and by the way, there's a scene, it's in the book, I believe that they shot it where Fanucci gets attacked and his throat almost cut and manages yeah. to survive. So you'll notice, oh, don't yeah. remember if you could see That's it in this right. scene, but you definitely can see it later on when he jumps on the truck with Vito that he has a, a, a scar along his throat, but that was actually cut out of the film. I think, yeah, I think they I think they did shoot that scene. I think it I is think a deleted scene you can see, yeah. Um, and the thing is, Fanucci, you know, he's not getting enough money and he's going to need double from everybody. Yeah. And who is watching him from the back? But Vito mm. watching the whole thing. And then it's even worse than that because Fanucci has brought like his nephew or something. And after they leave, the grocer comes up to Vito and he says, I've got some bad news. Fanucci's got a nephew. And Vito doesn't even let him finish his sentence he says because mm -hmm. he already knows what's going to happen and you have to give him my job yeah and what i i think this scene is so great and it's just what we were talking about before is Vito makes the grocer feel good yeah in this yeah. moment because he understands and he says and he says to him this is the beginning when he says to him like say so he says uh you were always good to me and he points to his head i'm yes, never going to forget it which is that beginning of this transactional thing you know well and and it's it's when he does that 
Yeah. It's such a Brando, it's such a Brando sort of gesture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You is. know, because what we connect it to is someday I might come to you for a favor. Yeah. Someday and that day may never come. When Vito goes like this, he is going, someday I will do you a favor. Right. Right. Or and, you owe me a favor. And and when the grocer comes out to try to give him a box of food yeah. to make amends, Vito turns it down. He says, "No, no, 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 no. I don't need. You know why? Because now you're in. Uh, you're in debt to me in a yes. way, and I can't take. If I take the food, I can't play this card if I need it down the line, which I think is great. I hadn't thought about that way, but you're. It's so right. Is that what he's doing? Is he's putting the grocer in his debt? Yes. If he yes. accepted the groceries, he would assuage the grocer's uh, guilt. Yes. And then he would no longer feel like it. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think that's exactly what he's doing. And then the contrast is so great because what does Vito come home with? A single pair. <laughs> yeah, just one pair. He turned down the big basket of groceries. Yeah. And then we see how much they could use it because the wife goes, oh, what a nice pair. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you imagine living in a world that our our ancestors, you know, and people of our family lived in where a pair, just a single pair was like a, <laughs> like Christmas, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, there, I'm sure there was, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, and it is, uh, the pair is a symbol of uh, divine sustenance, abundance mm. and longevity. So kind of indicating that uh, Mama Corleone is going to be around longer than Vito Corleone possibly as well. A little, a little uh, aside or a little, I don't know, what do you call it? A little hint of what's coming, foreshadowing. And of course, abundance. This is also coming, you know. That, I, I not, never knew that. And that's awesome. <laughs> um, and we're outside. And then up walks a man who says, I'm Clemenza. You still have my goods? Bruno Kirby. Yes, the late, great Bruno Kirby. Yes. What's so funny is I saw this movie in the, you know, early to mid 80s. And then I saw Good Morning Vietnam and When Harry oh, Met Sally yeah, and all yeah. these other movies. And I didn't know that that was, I didn't connect them until I saw Godfather 2 again and then went, holy shit, that's Bruno Kirby. Because <laughs> this is just such a different role, you know? Uh, he spoke Italian, and uh, uh, which is one of the reasons he's cast. I think he's great. And what I also think is, the this stuff with Vito Corleone and Bruno Kirby and eventually Tessio is the most fun in all of the Godfather films. Yeah, yeah. And don't discount the physical work that Kirby is doing as Clemenza. Mm. Mm. The the waddle, the uh, the oversized stomach, which I think he's wearing something there to look a certain way. Like Clemenza. well, it gets bigger as we go along. Yes, exactly. All of that is there to put you in the mindset of Clemenza. The use of his arms, the way he says "afangu," all that. It's it's interesting. The physicality of uh, creating a younger Clemenza is really because of course he does none of that in some of the other films that he's been in. So it's right. it's it's great to watch a great actor, even in a smaller part, work his magic. Well, and it's so funny because what we come to know him as is sort of this neurotic New York-y yeah. sort of yeah. character, <laughs> but that is not who this is at all. And I love this. This is great writing where he said, he asks him, did you look inside? And Vito says, I'm not interested in things that don't concern me. Here's why I think that's a great line is that he didn't say I didn't look inside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He, he essentially saying I did look inside, but I'm not going to, but you're safe with me. Your secret yeah. is safe. That's yeah, what he's right. saying. It's not my business. Yeah. yeah. Um, and <laughs> how at coffee, uh, Clemenza says, 
a friend of mine has a nice rug. Maybe your wife would like. Who has money to buy a rug? It's a present. I know how to return a favor. Now we're into favors. Here's my question for you. Yeah. When does he know? As soon as they break into the house. I think as soon as they show up in the house and he says, oh, my friend, he's not home. We'll just go in. And he, and he uh, uh, jacks the door and goes in. I think that's when Vito knows what's going on. Um, so I think yeah. 100% he knows then. Yeah. What I'm wondering is, does he suspect now? Oh, because, maybe because he's a coffee he, shop? Yeah, well, maybe. because again, it goes to this question of what is he thinking? It was your question yeah. when he looks at the guns. Right. Because if he's thinking two steps ahead, he knows whoever gave him these guns is a criminal. Right, right. You know, so now a guy says. Oh, yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, says, I have a rug. friend who's got a nice rug. Who yeah. can afford a rug? It'll be a present. <laughs> you know, so we go to the store and it's just, it's just so funny. You know, like, ah, oh, he didn't even, he's not even home. Ah, oh, he didn't even leave a key. Oh, no problem. And I love the moment that De Niro kind of takes a step back and gives a look around, you know, <laughs> and they go into this very, very fancy house. Yeah. The lighting is super golden. And he says, this is your friend's place. It's a real nice place. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love the, the Vito's slow, like, okay, I guess we're doing yeah. this now. Mm -hmm. And then there's a knock at the door. The, the the framing of this shot is amazing yes agreed bruno goes next to the door his back to the wall next to the door de niro sort of steps back and i'll just say just watch de niro in this scene and mm -hmm. all the thoughts that he's having as yeah. as this is going down because this could be the end for him yeah because the person knocking on the door i am is a cop, a cop. from the silhouette you can tell it's a cop so clearly somebody saw them break into this house from one yeah. of the apartments or surrounding areas and rang a cop or whatever. And so this person is knocking, trying to get in and can't, but Bruno's standing there with a gun ready to shoot a police officer who's going to yep. walk through the door. And Vito is seeing how deep he's gotten into this situation at this point. So, you know, he could turn back, but he doesn't. I'm assuming you've been in a situation where you realized you didn't want to be in that situation. Yes. Yes. I I have too. I have never been in a situation. Can you imagine the this person is about to kill a cop? Like Yeah, I've never been in that situation, no. but I have had to back in my 20s uh help a friend get his sister out of a drug den. Oh, in, you told uh, me the story. DC. Yeah. yeah. That was the closest I've ever come to something truly scary and violence breaking out or anything like that, which when you're young and you're full of piss and vinegar, you think you can handle it when you're older. You're like, I would never fucking do that again. You know? Yeah. But yeah, never with a killing a cop though. Jesus, thank God. I mean, I just like, that's a zero to a thousand, like yeah. real quick. Um, but the cop kind of peeks in, doesn't see anything and slowly moves out. And, mm -hmm. and again, just watch De Niro. And then we cut to the fun music again. And they're with, <laughs> walking along, carrying this huge rug. They yeah. take it up to Vito's place. And this is, again, it's a totally small thing. But you're talking to your props department or your art department. And they're saying, what kind of rug do you want? And you go like, well, I want a really fancy rug. What size is the rug? And this rug is exactly a tiny bit too big for the room. Yeah. It's like an inch too big. 
that is a great choice because <laughs> you could have a rug that's way too big you could have a rug that fits perfect you could have a rug that's too small yeah. just an inch too big is awesome and who is there playing on the carpet but little santino and clemenza's playing with santino and it's all very fun and then we cut from this kind of happy scene to back to the late 50s on a train everything looks more blue and michael is there and there is this guy mm -hmm. in black yeah, who never speaks in the film, has no name in the film, and mm -hmm. is just a weird presence every yeah. time he's in the shot. Out of nowhere, man. Out of nowhere. Michael finds new security after what happened at his compound. You know? And you're right. We're never introduced to him. We're never anything, you know? No one comments on him. Like they're like he just as this spectral figure. Uh, mm -hmm. By the way, his name is uh, Amerigo Tot. He's okay. Hungarian. He's oh. a he's a sculptor, a, apparently a very well known sculptor. Wow. And Coppola just found him at a casting call and liked his face. Really? Yeah. Insane. Insane. Yeah. Uh, and he acted in like three or four other things, but mostly he's well known for being a sculptor. And we're driving through Miami and we pull up to a small house and there's Johnny Ola and we walk into this strange small house and there's a woman there. Hyman's in there. I was just making some lunch. Would you like a tuna sandwich? Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> and it's just is so odd to go from where we've been into this house. This, by the way, uh, Hyman Roth's wife, her name is Faye Spain and she was a, like a B-movie heartthrob and Coppola had a huge crush on her. And that is why he cast her in this movie. Oh, the power of power, man. Yeah. And there is Hyman Roth, Lee Strasberg watching football. Yeah. Yeah. Lee Strasberg is like the most amazing casting choice. You know, uh, he didn't do many films. He no. was very well known as a teacher of actors, certainly taught Marilyn Monroe and countless others. The Strasbourg well, and Brando and, and Brando, yeah. right? Exactly. The, all of so many people learned at the feet of Lee Strasberg and his wife. Um, and uh, it's such an interesting choice. I liken it to Malcolm X when they cast, uh, what was his name as uh, Elijah Muhammad Freeman? Uh, he essentially mm. was the black Lee Strasberg for mm. African-American actors, for black actors and actresses in his community. And so when you see Lee step into this, and I remember Lee from Going In Style, one of my favorite forgotten oh, yeah. comedies. With I love Going Mark In Hardy, Style. Right? It's yeah. such a great film. And uh, the remake was terrible, so don't watch the remake. Watch the original. And he is so perfect as the pseudo-Meyer Lansky character in this movie, and it works so well, and Coppola is so brilliant to attach this uh, you know, a uh, made-up story that's not uh, this fiction, fictional story to non-fictional stuff that occurred uh, during uh, the 50s and the 60s here in this country and 40s with Murder, Inc. And so having Meyer mm. attached here and what we find out later, Mo Green is essentially Bugsy Siegel. It's just brilliant. Just brilliant. Well, and, and, and having Lee Strasberg, yeah. who is, I mean, what's so weird because Meyer Lansky, I, I have a weird analogy for this, but, but, we always go back to certain stuff. So if you watch Boardwalk Empire, yeah. you're watching the, the a generation earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, you're watching sort of ten years after Young Vito Corleone in the in the middle of Prohibition. Because right. the first thing that Hyman Roth says is that he loves football. He loves watching football in the afternoon. He loves watching baseball. He's always loved baseball. I love baseball. Ever since Arnold Rothstein fixed the World Series in 1919. <laughs> well, Meyer Lansky. 
I believe was involved with Rothstein yeah. in yeah. 1919. That happens in Boardwalk Empire. Yep. We see Bugsy Siegel in the movie Bugsy. There's things about Lucky Luciano, which yeah. is who Meyer Lansky's partners with. It's like we continue, or if you watched, um, we just recently did Capone and Capone yeah. shows up in Boardwalk Empire. And all of these things are really intertwined. Yeah. And it, the thing that I thought of is there's certain eras that we just keep going back to and re-examining. And the one, the analogy, which is so bizarre, but I think about the Tokugawa shogunate in Japan mm -hmm. is that's 1600 and that's where the shogun that's where the book shogun comes from mm -hmm. that's where the samurai musashi miyamoto stories is exactly that era the lone wolf and cub stories are exactly that era mm -hmm. like everything goes back to certain areas eras that we fixate on over and over again and the yeah. Meyer Lansky character is certainly one of them and then what I was thinking about was like Lee Strasberg is at the center of the acting, you know, it's like mm. Elliot, the group theater going to Lee Strasberg, going to Elia Kazan and Marlon Brando, and then Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, because Al Pacino is the guy who suggested Lee Strasberg mm. to Coppola to play this part. Huh. Like, there's all this intertwined stuff, and Marilyn Monroe, of course, yeah. and a lot of it all goes back to the feet of Lee Strasberg. Mm -hmm. And Coppola says he was intimidated. Of course he was intimidated. Yeah. Why wouldn't he be? He's a young punk filmmaker who's had one great movie on his resume, and now he's going to work with this incredible actor who's taught decades of actors. I don't know. Well, but he never said he was intimidated to work with Brando. Yeah. Maybe he was. I don't know. Brando had come and gone by this point, and That's he was essentially fair, yeah. resuscitating his career. Strasberg was still a, a, an icon you yeah. know, in the acting community, at least. Um, and the way he plays this part, because he puts like nothing on it mm -hmm. he's just a guy speaking the truth yeah you know all yeah. the time yeah i have no sense that this guy's acting at all i heard you had some trouble stupid people behaving like that with guns can i ask you a question and i hope i walked the line correctly i mean meyer lansky was very well known for the authenticity and uniqueness of being a jewish gangster who was able to achieve the levels of power and fame in this country that usually is when you talk about the mafia, the mob reserved for Italian-American gangsters or Italian gangsters. Meyer found his way through this. Lee Strasberg, also Jewish himself, playing this. Is there a certain level of care that you think he took to portray this uh, uh, Jewish person who was able to achieve such success at his uh, in his craft? Because what Johnny Ola says, you know, Meyer always made money for his partner. Or sorry. Uh, uh, um, Hyman, yeah. Hyman Roth always made money for his partners, you know, and that's what they said about Meyer. That's why they never killed. They never killed Meyer because Meyer always found a way to make money for his partners. Uh, and so, do you think that there was a certain approach that Lee Strasberg had to this iconic Jewish character in the history of uh, of uh, Jewish people in this country? I, have no, I mean, I have no. Obviously, I have no idea. Hmm. I mean, I my assumption. Huh, it's an interesting question. My assumption is that he approached it the way he would have approached any other part at all. Okay. You know, which is to you. I mean, he's the method guy is to use his sense memory and connect right. it to things in his life and do. And so in the sense that he is a Jewish guy from New York, I think Strasburg's from New York. Yeah. And that he has a similar background. And I think he went, this guy's like me, you know, yeah. Yeah. how is this guy like me? I'm sure he asked those questions, but, uh, but I don't really know. It, it, it's, it's, it's a funny thing you bring up and which I'd never thought about mm. because certainly Coppola, I, I think it's a great question. 
because certainly Coppola took a huge sense of responsibility as an Italian American yeah, yeah. of how he was going to portray this Italian. So it, it makes sense that Lee Strasberg would approach. And, and the thing, by the way, like uh, uh, Meyer Lansky did live in a totally yeah. ordinary house in Florida. Yes. He was very, even though it's people estimated his wealth to be 50 million, a hundred million dollars at one point or another, he never lived extravagantly. Mm -hmm. He never showed off. Like he was a very simple, you know, which mm -hmm. also is very Jewish on a lot of levels, <laughs> you know, to not be ostentatious and just yeah. be businesslike. The other thing too, by the way, that I was thinking about also, Hyman Roth always made money for his partners. Mm -hmm. I am sure the same could be said about Vito Corleone. Yeah, good point, which is why, yeah, good point. You know. yeah. So anyway, what's so funny in this scene is, is how they behave together. They have a little small talk, and then he says... Important thing is you're all right. Good health, the most important thing. More than success, more than money. That is such a classic Jewish grandfather thing to say. <laughs> like, your health is what's important, you know, like as long as you have your health, it, it's just like such a classic. Yeah. You know, my, my, my grandmother, Eileen said that my, my aunt Lorraine said that it's, it's also a little bit classic mafia. Well, as long as you have your health, which means <laughs> damn it, you survived. And we find yeah. out later that of course, Meyer, was involved in in uh, the plotting to assassinate Michael. And I also think it's interesting, and Coppola did it, they could have been watching anything else on television, Steve, but they're watching football. Two yeah. teams competing mm. against each other to see who wins. It's this it's a subtle kind of, you know, uh, uh, foundation he's laying, or subtle, because the first time they're meeting each other that we see on camera, right. and so you're seeing that these two titans are going to battle in their own game to see who comes out on top. Well, and yet at this moment, they seem to be partners. Yeah, they seem to be. Sure. Seem to be. Then there's this moment. It's almost like, okay, the agreed upon small talk is now over. <laughs> yeah. And they get up and we close the door and uh, Michael moves his chair closer and Hyman turns up the volume. And now we're going to get into the real conversation. Yeah, four plays over. Frank Pantangeli came to my home. And he asked my permission to get rid of the Rosado brothers. When I refused, he tried to have me killed. He was stupid. I was lucky. I'll visit him soon. I love that. I want to say that one time. I'll visit <laughs> him soon. He was stupid. I was lucky. I'll visit him soon. So here's what I keep going through in this movie that I mm -hmm. keep thinking about. What do we know and when do we know it? And what is the truth? Mm-hmm. So at this, so we know that Frank Pantangeli did come to see him. Yes. We know that Frank was pissed off at the end of their first meeting and left yeah. sarcastically. We know there was an attempt on his life. And now he tells Meyer Lance or he tells Hyman Roth that Frank Pantangeli planned it. Now, I yeah. can't remember the first time I saw it, but my assumption is that you believe him at this point. Yeah. The first time you see it, you believe Pacino and Corleone, Michael Corleone, what he's saying, that he believes that it might be Pantangeli. And the, the film does a great job of letting you believe that if you're watching it the first time. The second time you see it, you do understand. Pantangeli in no way has the kind of muscle or guts or balls to pull that kind of operation off against someone like Michael Corleone. But Meyer Lansky, I'm sorry, Hyman Roth Yeah, you does. and I are doing the same thing. I know, I apologize. Yeah. But Hyman Roth does, right? And I think when you watch it again, Michael knows the second he's telling Tom when he says, we're not going to find these guys alive. Unless I'm very, very wrong, 
they're dead already. It, he knows what he's doing and it begins the process, right? As much as Vito is also 10 steps ahead, Michael is also 10 steps ahead and he's figuring it out as he navigates this situation. He's incredibly deferential to Hyman uh, in that meeting too. You know, you're a great man. I can learn so much from you. There's mm-hmm. a lot of ass kissing here. And of course, he returns the favor by saying, you're a very considerate, you're a very considerate young man, yeah. you know? So there's this kind of thing where they're both circling each other, trying to figure out what what's really happening, who's got the car, who has all the cards, who's got the power. Um, but I think Michael knows that it's, um, which is why he mentions potentially and the Rosado brothers. He's trying to see how Hyman reacts to it um, and then later, when he confronts Pentangeli, uh, he knows that Pentangeli didn't do it, but he wants to kind of make it seem as if, uh, just in case Pentangeli breaks and did do it, he's got his answer. So I I, I agree with you, mm-hmm. but I was also watching and going like, do we ever get confirmation ever about which is actually the truth? Uh, I don't think that we do. About what? About which part? Who planned the attack? Oh, and, yeah, I, I, I think he says it uh, to, well, when we get to it, we'll get to it. I, he, but I know he certainly he says that Hyman Roth planned the attack. Right, right. And who planned the attack on Frank Pantangeli? Because the... the that was it, Hyman, yeah. But they say Michael Corleone says hello. Yeah, Daniela did that, but that's to throw off the scent, to throw off, to make Pantangeli turn on Michael. It's all in an effort to undercut Michael's power. But so, so but this is all stuff where we're getting yeah. ahead of ourselves. But, but <laughs> then that means that they, if that's the case, then they didn't actually intend to kill Frank, Frank Vantangeli. So did they plan on the cop coming into the bar no. to interrupt the murder? No, I think they were, I think the, the way the Rosado brothers are presented to us from the beginning, it's like in Scarface, the fucking Diaz, fuck the fucking Diaz brothers. They're just smarmy little bitches. And so when he, and you, know, you won't find this kind of analysis on a Leonard Maltin <laughs> podcast, but like, the way, <laughs> Roger Ebert probably never said that. He never said that. Like, <laughs> Only privately to Gene Siskel did he <laughs> call him a smarmy probably. little bitch. <laughs> uh, but like the when Daniello comes in and is garroting uh, Pentangeli, he is throwing insult on top of injury by saying Michael Corleone says hello. So their intention is to not only kill you but to spit on your face as you're dying. That's what he's saying. So every every sense of betrayal is there, and you're going to die. I don't think they anticipate the cop coming in at all, which is why they react the way they do to the situation. They're just trying to make Pentangeli uh, even... They just hate him so much that they want to make his death even more uh, uh, disgusting. Well, if you wanted to get Frank Pantangeli to turn on Michael Corleone, right. then having this being... This is the last thing he hears before he's about to die that's why he turns on corleone sure you know but it just happened could, to work out that way. It ha- yeah that just happened because the other thing that happens after we have this sort of as you said mutual ass kicking <laughs> and they talk about that they're going to you know make history together and yeah. that you know what even your father would never conceive of what you were going to do what mm-hmm. that this could be possible and then the last thing michael says is and potentially is a dead man you don't object Small yeah, when he says that, I think that's when Michael knows that Hyman was fully behind. See, Michael lays the traps in conversation. And if you fall into the traps, he lays multiple traps in conversation. If you fall into one of them, he only needs you to fall into one of them. And he's got his um, idea of what's happening. Remember, Vito taught him that in the first movie. Vito teaches him that. 
Keep mm-hmm. your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. So he's constantly, you know, having these questions. Tessio promised all the security. It's Tessio that's going to have you killed, right? So when the fact that when my when uh, Hyman says he's small potatoes, like it's not a big deal, that tells him right there. Hyman was behind this whole thing, and he's with the Rosado brothers. And Pentangeli is irrelevant to him. So if Pentangeli is irrelevant to him, that means Michael's irrelevant to him by by this by connection. And so that's what I think in that moment. Michael knows. See again, and always I think you're right. But I also go like, I'm not sure that I 100% know. <laughs> yeah, that's You know fair. what I mean? That's totally like, fair. I don't think because he could just say Frank Pantangeli, small potatoes. Hmm. He, if, and I don't think that Hyman Roth had nothing to do. Because the other thing, and I, maybe I brought this up in the previous part, hmm. I don't remember. Michael says. Catch these guys. Do you think we'll be able to find out who's back away? Unless I'm going to catch them. Unless I'm very wrong. They're dead already. They're killed by somebody close to us. Now, the main betrayer that we're going to deal with is Fredo. But mm-hmm. Fredo didn't kill the guys that attacked, which means there's somebody no. else in the compound that killed the guys that opened fire on Michael and Kay. Right. We never we resolved never, that. We never resolved that. Yeah. Now, Frank Pantangeli might have been in the compound. You know, sure. like, which, sure. you know, is it Rocco? Is it Neri? You know, is it like... Is it Cheech? Is, is it Cheech? Yeah, Cheech was there. But Chichi works with Frank Pantangeli. Yeah. So is it Pantangeli? Right. Well, this is why I go like because because let's well let's just get to the next scene because the next scene is we show back up at the old Corleone compound on Staten Island, mm. and uh, Frank Pantangeli gets there in the snow and finds yeah. out that Michael Corleone is waiting for you in your den. He's been waiting right. a half hour. Um, and I love the moment too, as Frank finds out that Michael Corleone is in his home. He takes a look at who is standing there, but our spectral scary guy in black. You know, just standing there before he goes into the house. Yeah. I do want to touch on one thing. The Once again, Coppola's attention to detail is so exquisite here. As he goes in the compound, his wife is waiting for him. His daughter comes down the stairs. Yeah. These are things that you would deem to be possibly unnecessary if someone else was shooting this. But there's a tradition that he wants to show, right? The wife standing there. In, because this traditional thing, type of thing, hand and foot, taking his jacket, taking his scarf, respecting the fact that this guy is a Don, in essence, of the uh, of the old area that uh, that, uh, Don, that Vito Corleone and Michael used to run. And his daughter coming down wearing what looks like her school outfit. She's nervous. She, The daughter and the mom are nervous you know uh a pentangent is a little nervous and frank comes in and again i, I love michael gazzo and says yeah. don corleone don corleone i i wish you would have let me know you were coming I, I could have prepared something for you i didn't want you to know i was coming and then this moment man you heard what happened in my home mike i almost died myself but it was also relieved in my home in my bedroom where my wife sleeps where my children come and play with their toys one of the things I love about Pacino's performance, particularly in this movie, is he was so quiet in the first <laughs> And then there's like, and you contrast Michael yeah. Corleone in Godfather 1 with Al Pacino in Heat. <laughs> and what he does at Godfather 2 is it's quiet, 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 explosion of right. intensity. I love the back and forth here, but yeah, he does yell at him, which is maybe the harbinger of what's to come from Pacino multiple years later in all these other movies, but it is shocking. 
the bass in Pacino's voice because it's the first time we're seeing from Michael Corleone. This is not the scared young kid that dropped the gun walking out of the Italian mm -hmm. restaurant. This is fully a man of immense power. But I think he's also, once again, laying these traps. He's yelling at Pentangeli to see if he can break him. He's yelling at Pentangeli to see if maybe he had something to do with it. And this ties back to what he asks uh, Hyman. He says... Uh, I'm going to kill Pentangeli. Do you have any issue with these small potatoes? Pentangeli is Michael's guy. Why would he ask permission of Hyman Roth to essentially hand him over control of that area of New York? He wouldn't do it unless he wanted to see Hyman's, Hyman's uh, connection or feelings about Pentangeli. And the same thing here. He yells at Pentangeli to try to break him and see if there's and if he's wrong about anything, just like he asked Carlo to admit that Carlo was the one who set Sonny up. His, he knew it. He felt it in his bones. His dad probably told him the same thing, but he had to hear him say it. And he had to hear him say that it was Barzini to validate his father's point of view about it before he passed. So it's Michael leads these reassurances as he goes along with his logic. And I just look at this guy. It's only two years after Godfather. Yeah. yeah. He looks completely different. He yeah. looks 10 years older. He looks, the whole way he carries himself has changed. Yeah. Um, and then he becomes quiet and he sits down. He crosses his leg. I find Michael Corleone most dangerous when his leg is crossed. <laughs> and he's leaning back. That's fair. I want you to help me take my revenge. Michael, anything. What can I do? Settle these troubles with the Vizano brothers. And I love how I love every way, every line he says. Like, I don't understand. I don't look, I don't have your brain uh, for big deals. But this is a street thing. And I'm in Roth in Miami. That He's backing up those son of a bitches. I know he is. It was Hyman Roth that tried to have me killed. I think he's treated Frank Pantangeli exactly like he treated Hyman Roth in a way. Mm -hmm. He's testing both of them. Oh, yeah. And and I don't come out actually knowing 100% for certain which one is telling the truth. Wow. Okay. C c because a Frank Pantangeli covering his own ass would behave exactly like this guy's behaving. I mean, again, I think yeah. you're right. I think Hyman Roth is behind it and Frank Pantangeli is not. Right. But, I, but I don't know that Michael knows this. Mm -hmm. It's because Carlo says it was Bronzini. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. But that's not what happens here. He says it's Hyman Roth, and Pantanzi doesn't hesitate, doesn't like with Fredo. See, and we'll get to this. I think Michael suspects Fredo from the compound, from the beginning. I think Michael suspects Fredo. And piece by piece, yeah. he comes so closer too. to that realization until the minute Fredo says, Johnny Ola takes, took us here all the time. And you see the devastation in that moment, and we'll get to it, of course. But like, I think I think Michael is very clear about it being Hyman Roth. He just wanted to unleash his fury on Pentangeli to see what Pentangeli did, and the fact that he was willing to go and kill the result, fight from help him take his revenge, all this kind of stuff. I think there's an authenticity to Gazzo's performance, to Pentangeli's reactions, that Michael is assured that he's right, that it was Hyman Roth and not Pentangeli, in my opinion. But like you said, we don't really know. 
Well, and, and like and like I said, I think you're right too. <laughs> but I just think there's so much strange ambiguity. That, and then what happens next is so interesting because, and, and and just watch the way Al Pacino moves through the space mm. because this is his dad's office. Yeah, and yeah. he goes in this sort of moment of memory of going, you know, like the desk used to be here, and mm -hmm. I used to play over there, and I was very happy that this house never went to strangers. First Clemenza took it over. Now you. And then he says, and again, this goes to the, for me, for, to the ambiguity. He says, my father taught me many things here. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. And he is standing right next to Frank Pantangeli. <laughs> oh, good point. Good point. Yeah. He's treating Hyman Roth and Frank Pantangeli to me the same. Yeah. I'm yeah. keeping my friends closer, but my enemies closer. And maybe, and I Again, I'll say it last time and then I'll shut up. But like, yeah. I think you're right. I think Hyman Roth did plan it. I think Frank, Pan Frank Pantangeli is on his side. Well, Michael doesn't trust anyone, right? That's he, the think, real, that's the I, real truth. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think they say it in the first movie. I think we talked about it. This idea that he doesn't trust anybody um, because he, he, you know, what, what he's trying to do is massive. His eyes are so much yeah. more bigger uh, for what he wants the family to be. So he can't take chances and trust anyone really. Even questions and, and, Tom later. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. We get to that scene. I want him completely relaxed and confident in our friendship. Then I'll be able to find out who the traitor in my family was. Which is exactly how he's making Frank Pantangeli feel. Relaxed yeah. and That's confident true. in their friendship. And, and we cut right. It's so funny because some things are so obvious in a film when you see it the second time. Then I will be able to find the traitor in my family. Mm -hmm. Cut to Fredo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right by the way in the black satin sheets oh, in of the... course that's fredo <laughs> fredo man fredo you know what if fredo could just shut the hell up he's living the life yeah he, you know i mean he he has very little responsibility he's not that much in danger mm -hmm. he's you know in the black satin sheets and playing around yeah. in vegas he's in a terrible position in that he is not smart enough to run things and he's sadly self-aware enough to know how stupid he is yeah. and to know how much people don't respect him. Authentically stupid people can't pick up on that. But people who are somewhat smart or somewhat self-aware can. And certainly Fredo did, which is why when he has that uh, back and forth with Michael later in the film, and he's like, I'm not dumb like people say. I'm smart. And the thing is, smart people don't have to say they're smart. You know, and, and that's the fact that he needs to yell it like that um, shows you that he actually isn't. He's just, you know, he's just aware how much people don't respect him and don't think yeah. he's smart. Yet he can't stop his tendencies to be gaudy in his approach to the world, you know? Well, he that's he he does he's not classy i mean part of his no. not being smart is he doesn't know what classy is no nope. you know um it's, it's so funny i it, it, here's another digression in our already 37 part series on the godfather <laughs> too um but it just came up on like some social media conversation uh i must have brought up uh the dunning kruger effect do you know about this i must have come uh, up no, with no, a podcast no, it yeah. it's the best scientific study of all time and it, it applies specifically to fredo Okay. The Dunning-Kruger effect basically says that your ability to judge your ability at a thing is directly dependent upon your ability at that thing. Yeah, I know that sounds like a lot of words, <laughs> but here's what it really means, is that 
if you go to people and you say, how good a driver are you? The majority of people will say I'm above average or excellent, which is impossible because half the people must be below average and a lot of them have to be terrible. That's how statistics work. Right. The, a race car driver, a professional driver can tell you exactly how good they are. Mm-hmm. They could tell you I'm this good at cornering and this good at this and I'm great in the straights, but I'm less good here because their expertise at the thing allows them to evaluate perfectly their expertise at that thing. Yeah, A lousy driver has no ability to judge their own ability at driving because they suck at it. So they can say, oh, I'm a fantastic driver. So your ability to thing determines how well you can describe your ability at the thing. Fredo mm-hmm. can say, I'm not dumb. You know why? Because he's dumb. Right. You know, like, right. and how many people, and again, I'm not going to point out to any political figures that might have said that I'm really <laughs> good at all these things, which they are clearly not. That is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. 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 That makes sense, actually. So, so Fredo gets a phone call. Um, by the way, what sucks when you have closed captions on is sometimes you hear things that you shouldn't hear. Oh. Because on the closed caption, it's, it says, Fredo, this is Johnny, Johnny Ola. Yeah. Which oh, ruins you can it. hear it? Oh, no, wow. you can't. You can, in, oh, in, in the, the closed caption, you mean? Closed oh, captions, yeah. you could read it. I don't know anything. You got me in deep enough already. So we know that Fredo is up yeah. to something. By the way, uh, Coppola, this is great advice to a director. He says, it's a good idea to shoot phone call scenes where the lighting is such that their lips are in the dark. Because hmm. then you can redub any dialogue you want if you need to change the scene which oh, they yeah. did. That makes sense. Yeah, smart. We're on a street in New York and Frank walks up, tells Cheech to wait in the car, gets to the door. These are the Rosado brothers and guy hands him a lucky C note for our oh. new deal. Oh. Uh, take it as an insult. By the way, th- this is based on the Gallo brothers. And mm. the C note is a quote uh, from a conversation with Larry Gallo uh, that someone did this before there was an attempt on his life. Oh, wow. So this is from a real mob story. Jesus, okay. And we, we go into the bar, and it's just what you said. Frank doesn't like this C-note thing. Yeah. And then there's Danny Aiello. Michael, cool. ah! and he says, hello. The grot comes in. Two more guys come in, and they're about to... I mean, this is just like Luca Brazzi. Yeah. You know, come and sit at a bar, and some guy comes behind and, and strangles you, except a cop walks in. Are you open or closed? Hey, I just come in to clean up a little, you know? And the cop kind of hears a noise and starts walking, and the bartender starts going, no, no, not in here. And, man, we go right into a gunfight. Cheech gets hit, a guy gets hit by the car, and then we cut to Frank Pantangeli, kind of crumpled in the corner, still alive. He's still alive. Six shots and he's still alive. <laughs> That's, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Well, yeah. Right around this point in the first film, we have a failed attempt on someone's life. Again, the Godfather Part Two gets away with essentially copying parts of Godfather yeah. Part One almost beat for beat at times, but because it's so uniquely different, it does not get dinged in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and that speaks to the um, just brilliance of Francis Ford Coppola. Well, and we talked about it before. It's it's not just that it's copying, it's transforming. Yes. Transforming. So everything is like, 
it's repeating a beat, but in a way that makes you feel completely different about that beat. And yes. I will say that the next one, which is the next scene, is another parallel, is as good an example of this as I can imagine, which is Fredo, there's a small plane that lands, and we walk into, you know, a whorehouse, and Tom is there, and we're sort of like, how is he? He's okay, he's in the back, and we walk into this room, yeah. and there is our senator. Listen, Hagen. I did not know. It's all right. I didn't do anything. It's okay. He's shirtless. He looks totally destroyed. Very lucky. My brother Fredo operates this place. He was called before anyone. Now, if this had happened someplace else, we couldn't have helped you. And then we see that in the bed is a woman covered in blood, yeah. dead. When I woke up, I was on the floor. And I don't know how it happened. The senator's performance is stellar yeah. in the shock and helplessness and confusion you know he keeps saying it was just a game it's just yeah. a game this is where spradlin is such a great actor man because he's playing the levels right i mean the same thing in, in uh, apocalypse now which some of you may remember him in that as well right he speaks with such love and respect and care for kurtz until they play that tape until he has to tell Willard what his mission is. He's out there operating without any decent restraint, totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct. And he is still in the field commanding troops. In this situation, the way he is at the beginning with all that swagger and all that cockiness, and he's reduced to this crying, sad old man so quickly, because he's like, I, I, I remember that we'd done this before. And he goes, I'll, I'll, I'll clean it up. I'll, I'll just, I, I can fix this. I can fix this. And he's like, you know, unstrapping her from where she'd been strapped to the bed and trying to clean up the blood. And then he just cracks. He just completely cracks, crying. Um, and at no point does he suspect that they set him up. I think this is what's phenomenal about this uh, is that he really does think it's a, it's a, uh, just a, a, an unhappy accident. You know, or a happy accident that occurred in a place and that Michael Corleone is willing to help it. Once again, the transactional nature of this, right? The difference between how Vito does the transactions and how Michael does the transactions. Michael well, set this up and killed a young woman with well, no this family. Is the, yeah. yeah, so, so there, there's a lot to say about this scene. So the, the, the first thing I'll say is my feeling is at the end, mm -hmm. or certainly years later, he knows they set him up. Probably. You know what I mean? And I even feel like there's kind of a look at the end of the scene yeah. when they're saying, you know, we're yes. going to take care of it yeah. where it's like, oh, and here's, but here's the thing we hinted at it, but this is the horse's head. Yeah. Is that, right. is right. that Waltz said to Tom, he insulted him. He yeah. made racial epithets. And then, and he says, there is no way that this is going to happen. And then he wakes up. Obviously, probably drugged while this whole thing happened, and in a bed with blood. And there is his greatest love, this horse severed yeah. it. And this is the same scene, mm -hmm. except that they didn't kill a horse; they killed an innocent woman. Yeah, it is a completely different thing. Yeah. And and what's funny, and I I think his performance is amazing too, because there's also embarrassment. Yes, because he was caught doing a really deviant thing, which yeah. he's done before. Mm -hmm. There is. 
I think some genuine care for this girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like when he goes to wipe up the blood, he's like, oh my, you know, he cares for her. You said we've done it before. She was laughing. I remember she was laughing. I remember remember she was laughing. Yeah. yeah. And the, the way that it's filmed, like even like when he's sitting and talking, there's a moment where you see the dead woman's face reflected in the mirror behind him it's just beautifully filmed and of course we know yeah we know that and and this is the thing i'm trying to protect tom from things that he shouldn't be involved in right tom is involved he was certainly involved in the killing of the six hundred thousand dollar horse now he's involved in the murder of this prostitute yeah Yeah, like what the fuck are you protecting tom from tom's part of the family michael like he's right here Another you know? thing, to, yeah, it's a great point you bring up, Steve. Absolutely. Another uh, approach to this is he had this done in one of Fredo's brothels. Yeah. So Fredo, Fredo is kind of attached to this as well, indirectly and involved in this as well. And also you have to ask yourself, how were they able to do this while he was there in the bed? They must have drugged him for they sure. Yeah. But the other women... Uh, did they not hear a struggle? Did they not hear a scream? Did they cover her mouth? Because it is a brutal killing from you see all the blood and from where they stabbed her. Because it looks like they stabbed her in the stomach and in the in the vaginal area. It is a horrific. It's horrible. Yeah. So you wonder how they were able to do this and to the level that they were able to do this. But this is where Michael's sociopathic nature or psychopathic nature comes into play. To him, she's small potatoes, yeah. as uh, Hyman might say. To get to what the ultimate goal is, and yet he's trying to go legitimate by uh, uh, committing these horrible acts of murder, crimes. Well, it, well, and this is the thing. Let's go back to Vito Corleone. Yeah, who says first of all, he says uh, to uh, Bonacera, he says that is not justice. Your daughter is still alive. And then later on, he says I want reliable people, people that aren't going to be carried away. We're not murderers, in spite of what this uh, undertaker said. Right. Michael is a murderer. Yes. You know, he has no such levels of this is not, this is the appropriate level of violence for this thing. Michael wants this senator to do what he wants him to do. And that's it. And and when we get to the end, you know, and Tom says, This girl has no family. Nobody knows that she worked here. It appears though she never existed. He does the hand gesture. Yeah. The hand gesture. Jesse, wow. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Um, and well, and this is the moment where the senator's got to know. Because the last thing he says is, all that's left is our friendship. And he looks up at him with this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're because right. that, because I'll tell you the other thing that means, we have pictures. Yep. Yeah. We got pictures of this. We And I think, and by the way, my answer to your question is I think they drugged them both. They drugged the senator and the girl. I think she yeah. was unconscious when this whole thing happened. Probably. And they kill, And the other thing, by the way, who is sort of hovering in the background is Neary. Yeah, Neary. He's the guy who did this. Tom didn't do it. Fredo didn't do it. Neary did yeah. it. Neary has these moments, Steve, where he's really, especially when it comes to the death of, of Fredo. Fredo, he yeah. does not want to do this. Yep. He does not want to do the things. He's actually a decent guy in a crazy world. 
but like he does well, not want to. He's do not these a decent guy. Well, all right, fair. But, but, he, he, but he, I agree with you that he doesn't <laughs> want to do these things. He's got some <laughs> lines that even he won't cross. I guess is what no, I'd no. Say. He still crosses them. <laughs> right. He okay. just doesn't fair. want to. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> he doesn't say, Michael. I really don't want to kill Fredo. Right. He just looks sad that he has to kill Fredo, and he looks down at the ground, almost ashamed that he has to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And Al survives to Godfather 3. The same actor comes back to play Al Neri. So clearly he didn't have an issue with it for too long, Steve. Um, I, I don't know if we've announced it before, but we are. I believe our first cinephile medium or whatever we're going to call is going to yeah. be Godfather 3. Yes. I haven't watched it in a really long time. I very I remember the big scenes, but I don't remember. Like, I remember the Andy Garcia mm-hmm. stuff, but I don't remember the whole thing. So it's going to be real interesting. And I'll watch Coda. So I'll watch the new version. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we can get Joe Mantegna to come on as a guest for us with that. That would be a blast. I am sure. Sh- I am sure. I'll, I'll write to him. Yeah, I'm not sure that See we can happens. get him, but I bet we could get a 15, 20 minute interview with him to talk about it. That'd be I, great. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, he's so, he's like one of the nicest people in the world. Yeah, he just showed up on a documentary I was watching the other day. I was oh, like, really? oh my god, I can't remember what documentary it was, but he was like, I was like, oh Joe Mantegna, he's and in the age that we had seen him yeah. in a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, we're back up in Tahoe. Kay wants to go shopping. I'm sorry, Mrs. Corleone. We're not to let you through. I'm just going to the market. Well, if you just give us a list, we'll pick up anything you want. And it's Tom Hagen's orders. Tom, I was going to take the children to New England next week. That's all. Am I a prisoner? Is that it? It's not the way we look at it, Kay. <laughs> but she is a prisoner. Yes. In many um, ways. And I think it's so interesting from the door being closed in her face to the look she gives Michael after the shooting when they're when they're like in with the kids when they're still looking for the guys that mm. tried to kill them to I'm a prisoner is that it like you see slowly but surely where this is going to go John let's go to Cuba I would love to go to Cuba by the way <laughs> my my parents have been my sister has been yeah uh, it sounds like an amazing, fascinating, interesting place. Yeah, Buena Vista Social Club is such a fantastic documentary about those Cuban musicians. It really gives you a taste of what that world was like and what that world is now. As opposed to Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, <laughs> which is less good. Although, I, if anyone wants to pick up the DVD, I edited all the bonus materials on that oh, DVD. There you go. Um, I had a, a thing for, I had a crush on that girl, Romola Garay. Sure. Very attractive British actress. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, and this is not actually shot in Cuba, unsurprisingly. It's shot in the Dominican <laughs> Republic. And we're driving through and we have the Cuban music and Michael's in the back seat. And there's that guy. <laughs> um, and uh, we see soldiers and kids begging. And we end up in this big meeting. And this to me is like the meeting with the five families. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. we're having a very big business meeting and Hyman Roth is there and uh batista is there who's the president of cuba at the time i want to thank this distinguished group of american for continuing to work with cuba for continuar trabajando con cuba for the greatest period of prosperity por el más grande periodo de prosperidad in her entire history in toda nuestra historia and we have sugar magnets and mining and food and michael corleone who's mm-hmm. part of nevada tourism <laughs> um and our old friend hyman roth 
then we go, and I got this solid gold telephone. <laughs> and I love that as they're passing, A, as they pass the solid gold telephone for everyone to hold it, it's also as we get to see each of our people. Yeah. And one of the things I love about the gold telephone is both Hyman Roth and Michael have the exact same reaction to it, which is they could care less. Yeah. Yeah. It's not interesting because neither of them are interested in in wealth for its own sake. Yeah. And they and we they ask about the rebel activity in Cuba and they go, No, no, it's no problem. We will tolerate no gorillas in the casinos or the swimming pools. <laughs> and this is, you know, the same thing that we saw in the first one of this thematic link between American capitalism and in this case American capitalism as it relates to American imperialism mm -hmm. and organized crime. Yeah. They're who's the same. Being, yeah. Who's being naive, Kay? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano had a huge relationship with Batista in Cuba. Um, there was plenty of money and kickbacks. Uh, they they had control over all these hotels. Money was fed off to Batista at one point, which I didn't realize that he was out of power. And basically, uh, Meyer Lansky bribed someone, the, the, the president at the time, $250,000 to step down so Batista could get back into power, <laughs> which I didn't know. Yeah. Um, we're after the meeting, we're driving, we're going through a checkpoint and there's some soldiers and some rebels being arrested and a guy gets away, jumps into a car, yells and blows the car up, kills himself and a bunch of soldiers. Mm -hmm. So this is such an interesting uh, part of the movie that we're going into, Steve, because now what great sequels do, we've said this over and over again on the show, great sequels expand the world. Mm -hmm of or the universe of the franchise right that's what great sequels do um and it's not easy to do and that's why a lot of sequels fail when they try to do so and this is why this film is the benchmark we are so far away from the kid killing salazzo in an italian restaurant we are now in the world of political intrigue of revolutions of changing of uh, presidents through revolution of wars of guerrillas there is more here that michael has to consider and think about as he navigates this larger world you know everyone says they want millions i want to be powerful i want to have all the money blah, blah blah but not everyone is willing to step up to the plate and expand their mind and their world to be able to understand what it is to navigate yourself into that position in life some people can do it some people are overwhelmed by it michael still at times is navigating this uh as he can and reacting to it um uh, to save his family or to keep his business or his endeavors going uh in a fruitful direction well, and I want to go back to what you said. I mean, you know, this line, who's being naive, Kay, mm. that goes throughout this whole thing because, you know, we think, oh, Michael is a mobster who's willing to do all these terrible things to gain power. And now he's doing these things in this small country, this small island in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Well, America and American capitalism has been right. doing this for over a century. Yes. And like, and, and like you countries. know. I don't know how many people know where the term banana republic comes from, but it comes from United Fruit overthrowing governments in order to get good deals so American fruit companies could get fruit from Central and South America. Yeah, that's, that's where the true. term banana republic comes from. Like yeah. we have, 
you know, whether it's oil in the Middle East and, 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 and friends, this is still going on. We, you know, our government has very cozy relationships with a yeah. lot of governments that we really don't like and yeah. has put up tons of dictators and supported tons of dictators, including Saddam Hussein and the Shah mm-hmm. of Iran and Batista and, you know, over Pinochet, Pinochet over and over and over again and they were all to support american business interests Mm -hmm. and to some degree strategic interests all over the world so who's being naive gay you (laughs) know exactly so that's where michael is or who's being naive america yeah it's so funny like i remember you know jimmy carter is not the greatest president although he might be the greatest post-president in Hmm. in history but fair but he made a change to American foreign policy that did not last. Yeah. And that change was he wanted American foreign policy to be entirely based on human rights. That it, So it would be human rights followed by American strategic interests, followed by American economic interests. Right. And then Reagan became president and human rights went back down to the bottom of the list. Of course. You know, and it has been really pretty much ever since. Sadly um, so. Yeah. And so who's being naive? Jimmy Carter's being naive. Right. That's, that's what it is. Let's have a birthday party <laughs> on a rooftop of a hotel. Hyman gets a cake. It's, and it's also sort of charming old man stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When a man comes to this point in his life, he wants to turn over the things he's been blessed with. Turn them over to friends as a reward for the friends he's had. And to make sure that everything goes well after he's gone. And someone says, oh, not for years. And he says, oh, we'll see. The doctors would disagree, but what do they know? I swear to God, it could be my grandfather, Mark. (laughs) You know? I do want to ask you something, Steve, before we go forward with this part here. Do you think Michael pulls what he pulls on the senator so it's him going down to Cuba and not the senator? Do you think he does this and this uh, does the thing that he does in the brothel so that the senator condones or backs up Michael going down instead of someone else representing the Nevada Tourism Board? Um, and, uh, and the timing of it just seems really suspicious, and I think the, that's the answer is yes to all of it because it's yeah. not it's not just so that Michael goes down. The senator is also in Cuba supporting their relationship with Batista. Now right. he has an inside guy in the federal government in the Senate right. who's, who is going to support his business dealings in Cuba. Right. Yeah, 100%. That's what I think. Yeah. 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 Um, right. And what's so great about this scene, so two things about it. First of all, it's really hot. And yes. when it's really hot, it's hard to keep a cake looking nice. <laughs> sure. And every time you cut the cake, you need to get a new cake. So there are all these cakes and some cakes are melting and some cakes are partially cut. Some cakes are, have lots of pieces. Some of the pieces are melt. It's like just a lot of continuity that's hard. And the other thing that's amazing is this is a scene about the great man dividing his empire. Yes. And he is literally dividing a cake up and handing it out. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the metaphor great couldn't have been like, it's just right there. What he's basically saying is, this is what we've been waiting for forever. What I'm saying is that we have now what we have always needed. Real partnership with the government. Smaller piece. And then he introduces Michael Corleone. At the time of my retirement or death, I turn over all my interest in the Havana operation to his control. But all of you will have a share. 
And again, more pieces of cake going out. I want all of you to enjoy your cake. So, enjoy. And then Michael says, in a casual way, I saw an interesting thing happen today. A rebel was being arrested by the military police. And rather than be taken alive, he exploded a grenade he had hidden in his jacket. He killed himself, and he took a captain of the command with him. What does that tell you? They could win. And then Meyer, oh, sorry, God damn it. Hyman <laughs> uh, takes him out of there. Because yeah. having this conversation in front of those guys could cause them to question the situation. I'd rather we talked about this when we were alone. The two million never got to the island. And then he walks away from him, right? This back and forth. This this moment between them is certainly interesting because it's also a generational thing, isn't it? Like an old man maybe isn't going to understand the changes that are happening in the 50s and the 60s. The young generation you know, is becoming a more louder voice, a voice for change, a voice for progress. Revolution is happening here. A younger man like Michael can see what a rebel did here and be like, oh, this is not as uh, secure of a situation as Batiste was um, uh, telling us it was. And so he has questions because as a younger man, he understands that desire to change. Because in essence, Michael is doing his own revolution, trying to depose that leader so that he can take his spot. He's in essence Fidel in this situation, overturning uh, you know, Batiste, who's in charge of the country. That's, that's really interesting. And the thing that I keep thinking about, I think we both agree that Michael Corleone doesn't do anything without a reason. Yes, true. He, he thinks through everything. So he knows that Hyman would not want him to bring up this question yes. publicly. Right. And he also has not given Hyman Roth the $2 million that he said he would give him. Right. And he knows that that is going to make Hyman concerned. Right. I think he intentionally is making Hyman Roth concerned mm -hmm. about this deal. And I'm not entirely, I think he is, he's, keeping his friends close and his enemies closer. Right. He's continuing to create ambiguity and tension around these things. And I think he's, I, you know, what it is, uh, you've played like card games like gin mm. where you're, where you're trying to collect a straight or a run or whatever. Right. And you often get to a situation where you have like two threes and you have a four five and you don't know, well, well am I going to dump one of the threes and go for the straight or am I going to dump the straight and go for the, and what you do is you sit with both in your hands until a card comes along that tells you which way to go. Yeah. yeah. I think Michael Corleone does that a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe he will go with Hyman Roth, mm -hmm. you know, maybe he will. Yeah. And if we go even farther out, Steve, if he has this conversation in front of these other men that he's just met that makes them question the situation, right? Then if he makes a move against Hyman Roth, those men will go with him because Michael saw what was going to happen before it happened. And so he looks like a competent leader, and so the transition is smoother. Do you know what I'm saying? And so mm -hmm. that's a possibility that's in his head as well, um, which is like you said, so which is why he brings it up this way to maybe unsettle yeah. the situation a little bit more, so that he, when he makes his move, um, won't require a, won't uh, get a lot of pushback. Two other technical things that are going on. Mm -hmm. One is that I said it was really hot, 
they wanted direct sunlight, which normally when you're filming, you'd rather have overcast. A, because it creates this kind of a softer light that's easier to deal with, and B, it's not directional. So because the sun moves, which means as you shoot things out of order, the shadows are going to move too. Mm -hmm. So, But they wanted direct sunlight, but they didn't have direct sunlight. So now they're actually trying to create direct sunlight with reflectors and big lights to so that, so it's making it even hotter. And the other funny thing that happened is Lee Strasberg's wearing this shirt, and it's like this white shirt, collared shirt with this black dot sort of pattern on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, after the first day of shooting, they'd lost the shirt. Oh, gone. no. So so Dean Tavalaris found a plain white shirt and drew the little lines on it with a Sharpie. <laughs> so some of it's the real shirt and some of it's the replacement shirt. And I looked at I can't tell. <laughs> it, it, he did a very good job. Uh, <laughs> it's later. I love Lee Strasberg on the couch with no shirt. I just, yeah. it oh. just seems so natural. I wouldn't want it to get around that you held back the money because you had second thoughts about the rebels. And he asked Michael to sit down and he puts his hand on his arm and it's very fatherly. Here we are, protected. Free to make our profits without Kifa with the goddamn Justice Department and the FBI. Just one small step, looking for a man that wants to be president of the United States and having the cash to make it possible. Who's he talking about? Himself isn't he? I think he's talking about Michael. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. He's talking about yeah. Michael. Sorry, that's yeah. what I meant. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah, because that's Michael, you know, Senator Corleone, right. Governor Corleone. Right. Another pets in the mouth. Yeah. And then he says, Michael, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. Which it is believed that Meyer Lansky actually said that. Lansky did actually say that. He yes. did say that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's some fun music, and a car pulls out, and out pops Fredo with a briefcase. The bellhop tries to take the briefcase. No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he comes into the hotel room. He embra they embrace. Uh, and Freddy is, you know, Fredo's a bit freaked out. Jesus Christ, what a trip. The whole time I'm thinking, what if somebody knows what I got in here? Can you imagine that, huh? Two million dollars on the seat next to me in that plane. <laughs> and Michael opens it. Fredo asks who he wants to count it. The family is making an investment in Havana. And Fredo asks, is there anyone I know here? And he says, Michael says, Hyman Roth, Johnny Ola. No, no I never met them. <laughs> yeah. Once John again. Cassale, yeah. He, John Cassale plays the lie yeah. just at the right edge. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. He has the right pause. The right reaction. And again, as I said, Michael's just watching him. Once again, like I said, Michael always lays these traps. I don't know. Uh, Hyman Roth, Johnny Ola, just to see how Fredo might react. You know, he doesn't 100% know that it's Fredo, but he's not sure who it is. And so he's like constantly in a state of asking questions and exploring situations with him. I thought maybe we'd, we'd go out together. I know a place we can spend some time together. Okay. And they're sitting at a cafe. Ugh. Brother, this is my... F f I cry sometimes when I watch this scene because... And I know it's weird. People might think it's weird. Fredo's just dumb. Yeah. And in this scene, Kazale is so exquisite as an actor. And it's even more heartbreaking to know that John dies from the brain cancer issue like only a couple of years later, I think, after this or a few years later after this. And we're robbed of such an incredible talent, but the way he plays 
the utter sadness and desire to have had these kinds of conversations with his brother. Fredo never wanted to be part of this business, man. Fredo just loved his family. And Fredo loved Michael. And he loved Sonny. Um, you know, when Sonny says, oh, he's going to, I'm, go I'm going to Vegas to learn the business. But it's all, he feels almost proud that Sonny has chosen to send him. And in this moment with, uh, in this scene with Michael, it's almost like Tom's scene when he breaks down in front of Michael earlier. He says, I always wanted to be thought of as a brother by you, Michael. You know, and remember, Fre this is the same Fredo who stumbled in drunk in the first movie and was so affectionate towards mm -hmm. Michael. He loves Michael. So when they're having this really kind of brotherly scene, it's heartbreaking to know what's coming next. And it's tragic. You know, it's that the last thing before the tragedy is revealed. And it's just devastating to watch them because they seem to have genuine love for each other, like legitimate love for each other. I, you know? I, I feel the same way about the scene. I think mm. it's I think his performance is amazing. I think it's really moving. And the thing I think is like, you don't have to think someone is the smartest person in the room to treat them with respect. Yes, true. And even if you never gave Fredo a great job, if you gave him some love and attention, he would be okay. Yeah. You know, like Fredo's the guy who sits in the room with wounded Vito when everyone else goes downstairs to dinner. Mm -hmm. Like he's filled with a lot of love for his family. He just yeah. need, he doesn't need to get as much love back as he gives. He just needs a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and the thing, and this goes back to, you know, maybe, you know what, maybe this is the whole thing about the, is it Hyman Roth or Frank Pantangeli mm -hmm. or what does Michael mean is I don't know what Michael means in this scene. Like you said, in the previous scene, he's testing Fredo and maybe he's suspecting, but I also know that in the scene where he genuinely finds out yeah. he is completely shocked and wrecked. Oh, sure. So to what degree, and then you say these brothers love each other. And yeah. I do feel that in this scene, but then I also go, or is he just, manipulating him and keeping his friends close and this is the thing yeah. i and i go like man what the fuck is it like for k i don't know what michael thinks right i don't know what he feels he might be feeling that or he might just be testing me yeah, yeah. he might have told tom that i always thought of you as a brother or he might just be using him right in that moment i, I, I mean, literally i don't know i've watched the movie a lot i don't know <laughs> i mean I always default to the fact, I, I, I guess now I default to the fact that he is a sociopathic introvert or psychopath, uh, psychopathic introvert in that, in that he's quiet. He does not, he doesn't like big crowds. He's never caught him with big crowds, but when he's one-on-one, -on -one, he controls the situation. And, uh, the sit and here with, with Fredo is the first time he kind of lets his guard down and starts talking to him and connecting yeah. with him. And, Fredo has a moment of exasperation. We throw something, and he, it's like, because he's because he has that moment with him. It was intimate, and he says, "Mikey, I was mad at you." And then, just when he's about to tell Michael, "Why didn't we spend time like this before?" Which I wonder if he had told Michael, this would have ended differently. What was he about, about to, to wait? Wait. What I, was he about to tell him? I think in that moment when he comes close, he's about to tell him that it was him that was involved with Hyman Roth, and it was him that like told, told gave the information to those guys, but he didn't know they were going to shoot and kill him, uh, which he reveals later. Right? I didn't know that it was going to be a hit. Right? But I think in that moment he's about to tell him, and then he yanks himself back and he throws that thing and he says, "Why didn't we have conversations like this before?" 
You know? I 100% agree. That's what I think, too. Yeah. I think he was right on the edge. He is. Because, well, and, and the thing is, and again, it's in the ambiguity. We know he gave them information. Yes. We don't really know what information. Right. You know, we don't know the level of his betrayal. And he was, and so I agree with you, is maybe if he said, hey, I did this thing, I'm really sorry, yeah. he'd be alive, you know? Yeah, um, possibly. There's this other moment, by the way, that's so fucking heartbreaking. You now, Mama used to tease me. She'd say, uh, you don't belong to me. You were left on the doorstep by gypsies. What a thing for mom to say. I know, right? <laughs> oh, my God. But Fredo's almost the big brother here, Steve. Do you do you catch that? That he kind of vacillates between being he is the older brother of Michael, but it but in the scene he vacillates between the older brother and younger brother, and it's really fascinating to see. It's the most alive Kazale is as Fredo yeah. in the in, in both movies. It's the most fully realized he is. His, his performance is fascinating mm -hmm. every time he's on screen. Yes. Uh, I, I also love, hey, how do you say banana daiquiri? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, and then we get, and so like, and I should have said before, when he's nervous after getting off the plane, he wants a drink. Mm -hmm. Now we're having another drink. Now he says after this pause, and, and by the way, Michael doesn't drink. He's just having right. a club soda. The Senator is flying in with some government people. I want you to show him a good time in Havana. My specialty, right? Because okay. this is where this is a huge resentment for Fredo. Is yes. This is all I'm good for. Right. I pick people up at the airport. I take them to bars. I set them up with hookers, of course, and drugs and booze and whatever they need to have a good time. That's what Fredo's good for. Yeah. But then it goes from that moment to like the heaviest thing possible. Later on in the evening, we're all invited to the presidential palace reception, bringing the new year. After it's over. Take me home in a military car for my protection. Which, by the way, reminds me of. Now we insist it's a public place, a bar, a restaurant, some place where there's people, so I feel safe. And they're arranging a meeting in Brooklyn, Tessio's ground, where I'll be safe. Tessio. Before I reach my hotel, I'll be assassinated. And then, right as Kazale is reacting. That's when the waiter shows up, which again, yeah. that's how you direct a movie yep. is, is you interrupt the, the big emotional moment. And Michael says he has no emotions about this. Mm -hmm. You know, Fredo's adjusting and trying to like, what does that mean? Right. And then he says, who? Roth. It was Roth who tried to kill me in my home. It was Roth all along. He acts like I'm his son, his successor. And Fredo takes it in knowing yeah. That he gave information to Roth, that he betrayed Michael with Roth. Yeah. How can I help? You just go along as though you want nothing. I've already made my move. What move? I'm in Roth. I'll never see the new year. By the way, Kazale and Al Pacino were, were buddies. Mm -hmm. They liked each other a lot. And they play this scene beautifully together. Mm -hmm. Hyman Roth is getting a doctor's exam. I want my own doctor. Fly him in from Miami. Don't trust the doctor. Can't speak English. Uh, he sends his wife down to the casino. And then when they're alone, he says, My sixth sense tells me your brother Fredo brought a bag full of money. Where is it? How does he know this? Uh, you know, just like Michael, I think Hyman Ross got spies everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they run the hotels. Mm -hmm. You're pulling out? Just want to, just want to wait. And he asks how he feels. I love this line too. I get four million just to be able to take a piss without it hurting. That line has always stuck with me, Steve. And as I'm getting older, 
<laughs> you're getting closer to it. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting closer to that moment where I have that feeling. And I say that line to myself. But yeah, go ahead. And then Michael asks, who had Frank Pantangeli killed? Just out of nowhere, he asks it. Just you know, breaking the tension of the small talk. Boom, right to it. And he's in full Michael Corleone mode. And it throws Meyer off a little bit. He responds to a kind of throwaway of the Rosado brothers, right? But who gave the go-ahead? I know I didn't. So two things about this. The first thing is that they think Frank Pantangeli's dead. Yes, they do. Because Frank Pantangeli went from that thing where someone said Michael Corleone says hello and went to the cops and is is now in witness protection. That's right. one thing. And the other thing is, I know I didn't. He's calling out Meyer. Pardon me. Hyman. <laughs> God damn it. He's calling out Hyman. Um, and then Lee Strasberg gets up. <laughs> and what's so funny is he's been so natural yeah. and effortless through everything. And then the intensity he puts into this speech and the strange sort of hiccupy noise he makes, mm-hmm. which I think is his illness. And he says, There was this kid I grew up with. He was younger than me. Did our first work together. Things were good. We made the most of it. We ran molasses into Canada. Made a fortune. Your father, too. As much as anyone, I loved him and trusted him. And Michael's just standing there. Because, of course, he knows who he's talking about. Yeah. He knew from the beginning who he's talking about. That kid's name was Mo Green. And the city he invented was Las Vegas. This was a great man. And again, the intensity with Lee Strasberg has just built and built, and he is lasering in on Michael. And there isn't even a plaque or a signpost or a statue of him in that town. Someone put a bullet through his eye. And I love how Strasberg plays this. When I heard it, I wasn't angry. I knew Mo. I knew he was headstrong, talking loud, saying stupid things. So when he turned up dead, I let it go. And again, the intensity has built even further. And I said to myself, this is the business we've chosen. I didn't ask who gave the order because it had nothing to do with business. And of course, what were we just talking about with Frank Pantangeli? Michael just asked, did you give the order? The question that... Hyman is saying he didn't ask when Mo Green was killed. Yeah. Because it had nothing to do with business. And then a complete change in subject. Two million in a bag in your room. I'm going in to take a nap. When I wake, if the money's on the table, I'll know I have a partner. If it isn't, I'll know I don't. Michael slowly looks up at Johnny Ola. And in the background is the killer in black out of focus. Yeah. Yeah. What just happened? Explain. What happened is that Hyman gave him a verbal spanking in essence. This is an older, seasoned, experienced guy smacking down the young upstart who dares to question him. Because Michael crossed that line when he says, who had Frank Pantangeli killed? Like he is putting uh, Hyman Roth on the hot seat and he doesn't have the, I don't know, the status to do that. And so Hyman gets up, and you're right. And I think this is a, uh, an, obviously this is an intentional thing by uh, Strasberg as an actor, but I think it also is, it operates under the intensity of what he's saying. The, 
the sound yeah. he makes it is to stress it's almost like a period happening in these uh, deliveries to michael i didn't ask who gave the order you know all of that is to put it back in michael's face who are you to ask me who gave the order you killed my friend i'm going into business with you despite the fact that you killed my friend and i by the way don't believe a word of what he said I think he absolutely wanted to know who gave the order. I, he, I mean, if you know Murder, Inc. at all, Meyer loved Bugsy. Loved Bugsy. Loved him. Absolutely. And, right? And so, and that's why when you see Bugsy, it is such a damn good movie because Warren Beatty and Ben Kingsley play that relationship out it's so well. It is absolutely true. So this could be an entirely four-dimensional, eight-dimensional chess game he's playing yeah. to exact his revenge for the death of Mo Green on Michael. And that's certainly possible. And so he's saying that. And so, and and then when he makes the change in the subject, it's an utter dismissal and walks away from him. He gets the last word. And Michael's not used to that. I'm very, very sure Michael's not used to getting the, not getting the last word in the scene uh, in his life, right, at this point. And Johnny Ola is almost like, like you see that meme of those dudes going, oh, shit. It's just basically that. Johnny Ola is looking at him like Michael just got smoked in a back and forth with somebody in a rap street battle. That's what it looks like because he's almost like he's smirking and he's smiling. I'm like, yeah, he put you in your place, young man. You know, and it's a great, great scene uh, for what it leads to later. But certainly the battle lines are drawn now between Michael and my, and uh, Hyman Roth here. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think everything you said is exactly what's happening. I mean, and, and what's so interesting about it is that we have the line in Godfather where Michael has said he's going to kill Salazzo and McCluskey. And yeah. at the end of it, he says, it's not personal. It's business. Which, first of all, it's not. It is right. personal. Of course, it's always personal. And it's business. Yeah. And then we have the murders of the five families, which is business, but it's not. It's and personal. then we have, and of course, Mo Green dies there. And we have this thing between personal and business. Mm -hmm. And Michael has been playing both sides. He's been, you know, cozying up to Hyman and cozying up to Frank Pantangeli and putting a lot of ambiguity, putting pressure on both, seeing which yeah. way they jump. And now Hyman has just kind of gone, I'm many steps ahead of you. Yeah. And, and here's the thing I think, too. My belief is if that, if <laughs> Castro didn't succeed in rebelling in Cuba, mm -hmm. and if, Michael did put the $2 million on the table in the mm -hmm. hotel. They would be partners. Yeah. Up to a yeah. certain point. Yeah. Is that Hyman, because Hyman Roth always made money for his partners. Right. I think if it's advantageous for Hyman, he would just go ahead and do it. Yeah. That's what I think. Right. So one other quick thing is uh, in 1948, I think it is, uh, Lucky Luciano, who was uh, could no longer live in the United States. He was living in Sicily. Uh, so he couldn't return to the United States. So the only place that Lansky could meet with him because they still were ostensibly running the syndicate together was in Havana. Mm -hmm. And they had a meeting in Havana where it is possible that they decide to kill Bugsy Siegel. He died right after it. He was not at this meeting. Right. It's also the other possibility is that it was the Italian mob that killed Bugsy Siegel against the wishes of Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano. Mm -hmm. And the one other thing I found out about this meeting is the entertainer at that meeting was Frank Sinatra. Of course. So Frankie, <laughs> good old blue eyes. So at this moment, as we don't know if Michael Corleone will make the deal with Hyman Roth, we don't know who the betrayal in the family is. 
it's Fredo. We don't <laughs> know whether or not Michael will be assassinated or whether or not he will kill Hyman Roth, as he said, that Hyman Roth won't make it to the new year. I think, John, it's a good time to end our second out of 148 part <laughs> exploration of the godfather 2 as always we'd love to hear your thoughts on our facebook page do a search for the cinephiles please subscribe to the show on itunes or youtube or spotify or amazon or audible that five star review on itunes let's just say we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse <laughs> again if you could see john's gestures at that moment it would have made it even better um you can buy or stream godfather 2 along with every other film we've ever done on our website cinephiles.net there are links to amazons for every uh, all of those movies and if you just want to buy that new uh lg oled tv click on our link first and we will get some tiny percentage of it it really does help the show the best thing you could do to help the show is go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles and if you want to reach me, you can reach me at SR Morris or SR Morris one on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. You can reach the cinephiles at the cinephiles podcast on Twitter, cine underscore files on Instagram. I might've gotten that backwards. And John, how would they reach you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. Let us know uh, what you think about uh, this part. Let us know what you, what your thoughts are about our points of view uh, on what we see happening here in this relationship between uh, Hyman Roth and Michael Corleone. Are we wrong? Are we off? Are we missing anything? It's always fun to hear your thoughts on Twitter or see your thoughts in the comment section on the YouTube versions of these uh, uh, episodes as well. And don't forget those uh, comments. Leave the, I'm mean, sorry, don't forget those uh, reviews. It's really important for us to get over those thousand five-star reviews. Um, and can't thank you all enough. And please come find me at my um, uh, YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash John Roca says. A lot of stuff happening there. A couple of new shows coming as well. So please uh, go and subscribe. Have? <laughs> well, I, I ended mornings with the outlaw, so I have to find something to not fill that time slot, but something else now to put in there that i've got an idea already for a show that i'm kicking around and with someone who i think will be an awesome co-host if we can make it happen so we shall see how about this the yes. outlaw outlaw the musical <laughs> yes perfect we'll just do it we'll and see. uh as we wait with bated breath for new outlaw nation shows <laughs> we are going to sign off at this point we'll be back for act three of the godfather part two right here on the cinephiles What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.